Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 12, says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called to one, in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I'm going to um, try not to just drone on incessantly this morning. I'll be real honest with you guys. I'm just trying to figure out how this is going to work so everybody can see. That should be better, right? Now I can see Sophia, so we're good to go. Um, I was up until, I was working until midnight, um, because that's my new shift, and then uh, Lisa had to go get Sam from his trip to Milwaukee uh, at like 2.30 in the morning, and then for whatever reason, I woke up at 5.45. So I'm a little tired, and one of two things is going to happen either. I'm going to get silly and say things that I shouldn't. Uh, at times that I shouldn't, or it's going to be monotonous, or the Lord will show up and this will be wonderful. I'm praying for that third option. Pray accordingly, please. That's why I bring that up. So this is a Thanksgiving sermon because it's Thanksgiving this week, right? And the Bible says in November, because of the pilgrims, (laughs) we're supposed to... It's a Thanksgiving sermon because, you know, one of the things that this country does right is we do still have a season set aside to give thanks. I don't think most of our country knows who they're thanking or why, but we ought to, as the people of God, stop and kind of raise an Ebenezer and say, this far the Lord has brought me and I'm grateful. But I wanted to frame our Thanksgiving in terms of um, the way the gospel orients our hearts and minds to interact with one another, all right? So that's why Colossians 3, 12 through 17. The first thing I want to point out to you, I'm sorry, I'm closing in on you, so I don't close in on your instrument. The first thing I want to point out to you is in verse 12, we are called God's chosen ones. Nothing else in this passage matters if you don't get a hold of this. The fact of God's choosing me to be saved is the cornerstone, listen, it's the cornerstone of my assurance of my salvation. My, my assurance of my salvation is not rooted in the Southern Baptist doctrine of once saved, always saved, although I believe that. Um, the cornerstone of my assurance is not my behavior. It's not what a great job I'm doing as a parent. It's not what a great job I'm doing as a husband, and it's certainly not what a great job I'm doing here on Sunday mornings, all right? The assurance of my salvation and the assurance assurance of your salvation ought to be this. You once were lost and you were found. You found nothing apart from God finding you. 
and making himself known to you and dragging you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, therefore, put on as God's chosen ones carries with it some weight. I'm going to read you some other passages. In John 15, verse 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Jesus just said that God, Jesus, chose you, if you're a believer, so that you would bear fruit, that fruit would last, it would have, it would have longevity beyond the next five minutes, and that you could have a relationship with your creator wherein when you ask him for things, he actually gives them to you. You were chosen for that. In John chapter 6, he says, All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. In verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And my favorite passage of Scripture that obliterates the whole idea of the sinner choosing God is in Acts 13, 48, where it says, When the Gentiles heard this, and it's the gospel, Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying God. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Understanding that God is the one who took the initiative in saving you will protect you from your assurance of faith falling apart When you walk out of here and half an hour after we get done singing and I get done preaching and we get done taking the Lord's Supper and you reach this spiritual mountaintop moment and then have, you know, an immature meltdown later on this afternoon. Assurance being in God's choosing of you will protect you from completely coming unhinged when life doesn't go well and you don't behave well. So Paul says, before I get into all of these mandates, I just want you to remember that God chose you. You know full well you are still in constant need of mercy and grace, right? If you found God and made him your God and still needed constant mercy and grace, would you really expect him to give it to you? But if he found you and made you his son or daughter, then you most certainly can expect him to continue to pour out mercy and grace in your life, in your heart, in your experience. This is critical doctrine. And if you start with that understanding, the rest of this sermon follows. You are chosen, but for what? So verse 12, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Look at Mark chapter 10. Somebody should make an iPad, iPhone, Bible that makes rustling page noises (laughs) when you're looking for... Mark 10, verse 13. The people were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child 
shall never enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Paul says, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And I think Jesus is a perfect example of that. What do you all think? Yeah. And I love the story of him with the little children because it's a perfect example of Christ doing for those who could do absolutely nothing for him in return. And then he says, this is how I want you to relate to me. And he's talking to you. So whether you're in your 70s or your seven, the way that Jesus wants you to relate to him is the way that we see him relating to these children in Mark chapter 10. My relationship with my Savior is not predicated or dependent on me doing things for him. It's predicated on what he has done for me. He chose me. He's making me like himself. And now I get to have a compassionate, tender, merciful, kind, meek, and humble heart as a result. So that when I interact with you, it looks like somebody who's been saved by grace through faith and not somebody who thinks he's kind of earning something and is kind of owed something by all of you. Put on a heart which values those who can give you nothing in return. Put on a heart which defends those who are defenseless and helps those who are helpless. After all, what did God do for you? Where would you be if he hadn't rescued you from sin? And on a side note, can I just say that having children will teach you whether or not you have patience. I was very patient and a very good father until 2006 when I had children. It's true. It humbles you real quick. Verse 13. With your heart of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Verse 13, bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Uh, <clears throat> there's a, we, we, we went over this maybe a month ago, but I'm going to rehash it because I think it's important. There's this expectation in Christian circles that when we come to a disagreement, The place to which we are supposed to run is Matthew 18, right? So all disagreements get filtered through Matthew 18, which means you did something that offends me, so I'm going to come to you and accuse you. And if you don't repent, I'm going to go get somebody else, and we're going to make you repent. And if you still don't repent, we're going to take it to James, and he'll make you repent. And if that doesn't work, we're going to kick you out of the church. That's the wrong spirit of Matthew 18. I, I don't think that's really what it says, but that's kind of how we view it. What, what Colossians 3.13 just said is we're supposed to bear with one another and look right at it. If one has a complaint against another, what are you supposed to do? If you have a complaint against somebody else, what's your obligation? I'm going to go to Matthew 18. What's it say? No, it doesn't. It says, forgive them. Now, are there times where that can't happen? Where it just is not that easy? Absolutely. But this is the, like, this is the foundation, I think, of gospel relationship. What does God do when you sin against him? 
Does he, does he get kind of cold and standoffish? And is he a little bit disappointed? Does his disposition towards you change? Or did he know, being sovereign, full well, when he chose you to save you, that you were going to do that 25 years later? Oh, he knew. And what's his heart towards you when you sin against him? Well, he convicts you, right? The Holy Spirit convicts you of sin. You feel the burden of guilt in your conscience over what you've done. But you feel that guilt and that burden knowing full well you are cleansed and forgiven. You're still his child. You still are in relationship with your creator. Listen, if God can do that for us when he is holy and perfect and just and never sins, can't we kind of sort of do the same thing with each other when I'm a sinner and you've just sinned against me? Does that give us license to just sin against one another and treat one another horribly? No, of course not. It should make us want to be kind and loving and compassionate and meek and gentle and humble towards one another, right? So if any of you has a complaint against another, forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you. So this begs the question, how did the Lord forgive you? Do you remember how many cattle you brought? Or what your grain offering was? How many doves you had to kill in order for God to forgive you? The answer is none. The answer is a bleeding Savior hanging on a cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how God forgave you. So when we're in conflict with each other, it ought to look like we believe that the Savior died. We ought to be able to let things go. You know what I like to remember? <clears throat> when somebody has transgressed me, uh, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's how I got saved. So what should we require from one another? Verse 14. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So put this on. Wear this. Everybody got up this morning. Maybe last night you thought about what you were going to wear this morning. Kate knew, I'm sure, by the time she went to bed last night, what she was going to wear this morning. Because she usually tells me. We think a lot about what we're going to wear, right? Because we want to look good. I'm just waiting for somebody in here to get over the thought that they're having. Not me. I don't care. Man. <laughs> yeah, you do. We all care what we look like. And Paul knows that. Nothing's changed. They cared what they looked like back in the day, too. What does he want you to put on? What's the Holy Spirit telling you to wear? Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So what he wants us to wear, especially when we come to church, is this desire to do things for other people at our own expense. A desire to bless other people and have it cost us and not them. That's what he wants us to wear. This is how we're supposed to dress. Like, what does church look like if we all dress like that? All my 
compatriots from the last place have resisted the urge to say anything about the fact that I haven't worn a tie since July, <laughs> right? It doesn't matter. It's not about that. It's about whether we come in here dressed in the love of Christ and treat one another accordingly. Now, sometimes the act of love looks like confronting sin. And so I don't stand up here and tell you you're wonderful and everything's going to be okay because Jesus just loves you. I try to stand up here and say, listen, Jesus died to save you from your sins, so maybe we should stop sinning. Maybe our consciences should be bothered by the way we conduct ourselves towards one another. Maybe we do need to let things go and stop being bitter and negative and raunchy and gross and stinky. So clothe yours. Everybody freaks out every time we get like, I feel it. It's all right. I know it's clothe yourselves in the garments of Jesus love for you. Wear that. It's not fake to come in here and smile, even though maybe you don't feel like smiling. Do you hear what I'm saying? Like, that's not fake. That's coming in just trying to bless everybody else. Come on, let's be honest. And I'll quit using her as an example because she's not an idol in my heart. But if you had what Carrie's got, wouldn't it be a little hard to smile? Do you, some of you think she's faking it a little bit? I'm so, yeah. I'm so glad she's faking it because it encourages me. I'm like, well, I'm not going through half what she is. I ought to be able to smile too. It's not fake to encourage each other to love and good deeds. And if you're so real that you can identify everything fake about everybody else, you know what you need to do? You need to put on love. You need to be compassionate and humble and meek and gentle. I think I just went to meddling because there are a lot of eyes turned down. Verse 15. Verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. All right. I'll settle down. What rules in your heart? What consumes your thoughts? What do you fret about? What keeps you up at night? What steals joy from joyful moments and pours sorrow on sorrowful moments? What rules your heart? I'd also like to point out that the Holy Spirit, look, look at this verse. This verb is important. The Holy Spirit doesn't say, make the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What does it say? Allow, let, permit. Are we resisting the peace of Christ? I don't know, maybe you're not, maybe you are. But when the Bible says, hey, let this happen, we need to get a picture of God faithfully imposing peace on your heart and you faithlessly preferring to be obsessed with things that you can't control. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Listen, this is John 14, 1. Everybody knows this verse. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. So, Stay with me. Let not your heart be troubled. Instead, do what? Believe. I'm going to say it again because Natalie's not paying attention. Just joking. I don't know if you are or not. Let not your heart be troubled. Instead, do what? 
We can do better than that. Let not your heart be troubled. Instead, do what? Okay, perfect. So we've got part one, part two. In John 14, 27, Jesus says, peace I I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So the first part was, let not your hearts be troubled, believe. The second part is, I want you to have peace. I'm Jesus. I want you to have peace. Not the way the world wants you to have peace. So I think the Bible's telling us there's, there's, there's two reasons that we resist the peace of God. Number one is unbelief. We simply do not believe. Right? How do you fix that? Well, you look at Mark 9 and the, the guy whose kid is beset upon by a demon and he comes to Jesus' disciples and the disciples are like, yeah, we can cast it out, no problem. And they try and they fail. And then Jesus comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration and he sees everybody swirling around this guy. And the guy runs up to Jesus and says, hey, I brought my demon-possessed kid to your disciples so that they could cast out the demon. And they couldn't do it. And Jesus says, oh, faithless generation, how long must I bear with you? And the man says, if you can do anything for my kid, will you? And Jesus says, if I can, all things are possible for them that... And the man says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. That's step one. You want to let the peace of Christ rule in your heart? Cry out to God and say, listen, I believe, but I'm believing against a mountain of evidence that I'm on my own here. The bills are piling up. My health is failing. My marriage is in trouble. My kids are going nuts. Like, I do believe, but help my unbelief. You want to have peace from God? You have to believe what he has said concerning you and concerning himself. I'm not up here telling you it's easy to do. Come on. It's hard. And then the second thing is, I think our lives are marked by anxiousness and anger because we overvalue things that are passing away. Lee wrecked into a deer this week and he didn't call me, pray for me, brother, my car. Because he doesn't overvalue things that are passing away. Sam had, he's not here. It's, I almost don't want to tell this story because he's not here. To, so you guys can all be at peace with the fact that he knows I'm telling these stories. Sam, I, I implanted in my son an obsession with The Legend of Zelda when he was very young. Because I loved that game and the story. And so I got him playing it. And about the time he was too old to be crying in public, seven or eight, he had this uh, glass jar with a stopper in it full of red potion, which if you play Zelda, the red potion restores your health. And he also had a green one that restores your magic. Anyway, not the point. (laughs) He's out playing in the driveway with the neighbor kids, and somehow the glass jar of red potion falls and shatters. And I happen to look out the window into the driveway and I see him, I mean, weeping. And I'm just thinking, the jar was like $2.99 at Hobby Lobby. (laughs) And it's food color and water, like we can fix this. But for him, this was such a big deal. He had valued this thing so highly. It was a treasure to him that he he came to tears over the fact that it broke. And I remember... 
watching him and thinking, that's me over so many things that are passing away that don't matter, that I just cling to in my heart, that, that, that they're worthless, but I would weep if I lost them. It's all of us, right? There's so many, like we're going to get to glory and we're going to look back at the stupid thing we cried about, relatively speaking, and be like, oh man, I was way too preoccupied with things that didn't matter. Why doesn't the peace of Christ rule in my heart? Two reasons. Number one, there's just too much faithlessness there. And number two, we are way too interested in things that don't matter. Got to let go of those things and embrace the thing that does matter. By faith, if you want the peace of Christ to rule in your heart, you need to start thinking about the situations that you find yourself in as the result of God's choosing. Things aren't just happening to you. You were chosen for these things. I was chosen to be beset by anxiety and have a panic disorder. I was chosen to have a heart condition. I was chosen to be broke. Whatever situation you're in, And you can probably point to all the mistakes you made that led you to that place. But whatever situation you're in, it did not happen outside the sovereign, loving control and hand of God. You were chosen for it. I want the peace of Christ to rule in your heart. And I know that the only way that's going to happen is if you relinquish this idea that you're the master of your fate and the captain of your destiny. You're not. What did we start with? He chose you before the foundation of the world. And what you're going through now is a result of that choosing. Cars, houses, jobs, and even relationships are temporal things that make crummy gods, right? So sometimes we lose those things. He takes them away. There's an amazing story. I think it was Chuck Swindoll tells, and I probably tell it too much. Joel will let me know after. Um, He, he finishes preaching one morning and he's doing the thing that I don't do where you stand by the door and greet people as they're leaving. And uh, Corey Ten Boom, who wrote The Hiding Place, who was uh, in a Nazi concentration camp during World War II with her sister. Um, Corey Ten Boom was in his church. I can't even imagine like preaching to somebody like that. But he's at the door and his kids are swirling around his legs, just generally misbehaving, right? You know what that's about, Luke, uh, Lucas. So she comes up to say, I'm just, I'm dragging your kid in front of everybody. I, forgive me. I told you I was tired. Uh, <clears throat> she comes up in her aged, wise, I've been in a concentration camp and trusted Jesus anyway, way, and sees the kids. And she says to Chuck Swindoll, are these your children? And he, I, this cracks me up. He said, no, of course, these are not my kids. <laughs> But she knew that they were his and she takes his hand and she curls it up into a fist in her hands. And then she she slowly pries his fingers open and she says, hold the things that God gives you loosely. Or he will have to pry your hand open to take them and it will hurt. I want you to have the peace of Christ ruling in your heart. 
You got to let go of things that make crummy gods. You won't find peace there. Verse 15 goes on to say, to which indeed you were called in one body. So we were called to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts corporately. This is not just an independent mission that you're now on. This is something that we're supposed to be doing together. All together, we're going to let the peace of Christ rule in our corporate heart. In churches all over the world, Christians gather in a place that they call the sanctuary. Now, this used to be a bar, and it wasn't even a cool one. <laughs> right, with like old stuff from the 1800s in it. No, you can tell this place got put up a minute ago and not well. And it's been remodeled, and it's, kind of, it's nice in here now. But the sanctuary, mm, there's no stained glass windows. There's not even a cross. Suzette's going to fix that. Like Sanctuary doesn't seem like the right way to describe this place, except I don't know about you, but when I get in here on Sunday morning and I get to hug you guys and talk to you guys and pray with you guys and, and sing with you all, suddenly this becomes a refuge. Amen. It becomes an oasis for the soul. You want to know how we can keep the sanctity of this gathering intact? You deal with your own sin before God. I deal with my own sin before God. And then we walk together in newness of life. We got to do that. Verse 15 ends with, look at it. And be thankful. So that's the Thanksgiving theme, right? What are we thankful for so far? I was chosen by God to be saved from sin. If you're thankful that God chose you out of darkness and called you into his marvelous light, just say amen. 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 Number two, I have been clothed in compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Like, I didn't buy those clothes. He just put them on me. And I'm getting better at wearing them. Number three, I am in a family of people who are tenderhearted and forgiving. We'll see. I'll talk to him after and see if he's tenderhearted and forgiving for dragging him in front of everybody. Fourth, we have all been clothed in love and we do things willingly for one another at our own expense. So you'll see this more and more as we get together. And I'm just going to bring this up. I'm going to take a lot of license right now and bring this up. When I first met Roy in the late 90s, I found it difficult to understand what Roy was saying because Roy had a persistent stutter. And when I realized that I needed to get somebody else up here to read the scriptures and pray on Sunday mornings, I wanted to start with Roy because I knew in my own heart it would like... It would lift me up just to hear that man speak and pray extemporaneously. It would remind me that we're in a family that does things willingly for one another at our own expense. That was not easy for him to do. He did it to bless all of us. Very thankful for this family. Fifth, I have the peace of Christ ruling in my heart. Getting better at that one. Right? Not great at it. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. 18 years ago, I made the best decision I ever made in my life. Uh, I had, there was a young lady in my life who I just delighted in. 
and really enjoyed being around to the point where I got to that place where I'm like, I don't like saying goodnight and dropping her off or her leaving. So I asked her to marry me because I wanted to dwell with her. I wanted to make a family with her. And she said yes, because the Lord in mercy blinded her <laughs> long enough to say yes. And then once she regained her sight, it was too late. <laughs> when Paul says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, this is the picture that you need to have. The gospel needs to be your constant companion day and night. Isn't it funny how when you sin, when you stumble, like the emotional residual effect of sinning and stumbling sticks with you for days? Isn't that interesting? But when you do well, you don't really ever feel like you've done all that well. You need the gospel to be your constant companion. You must declare to yourself as long as you have breath, that I am Christ's and he is mine, not because I'm wonderful, but because he is. I am Christ's and he is mine because he loved me, so now I can love him. I'm Christ's and he is mine because he hung on the cross and paid for my sins, not because I'm gonna climb up there with him. You have to tell yourself the gospel constantly or all of the demons that would love to plague you will get a hold of you and they don't let go easily. Let the word of Christ richly dwell with you. It's your new best friend. You live and move and have your being in the gospel. Amen? Amen. Verse 16. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So we have to encourage one another along these lines. Paul prescribes that this be done in wisdom. When I was a teenager and we st first started experimenting with counseling each other, ooh, that was a train wreck, right? Because teenagers don't give good advice. When guys are giving young ladies advice, there's an angle to it. And that's all I'm going to say about it. And when young ladies are giving each other advice, it's always terrible. <laughs> because it's not about her, it's about him, right? And what she needs, what you need to do is... Mm, mm -mm. What Paul says is, we need to do this. We need to admonish and encourage one another in wisdom. Well, how's that accomplished? Psalm 111, Proverbs 1, both say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if we're going to encourage and admonish each other in wisdom, we need to do it with this in mind. Hey, whatever counsel I give you, I'm going to be held to account for by somebody much higher than my parents and somebody much greater than my pastor. Be real easy, right, about giving counsel. This is why James says, let not many of you become teachers, for as such you will incur a stricter judgment. Like, I'm going to get judged more harshly than you are because I stand up here and do this. Let it be done in wisdom. And then, interestingly, he prescribes that it be done through singing. We can instruct one another through singing. And everybody in this room who's ever had their heart tuned up during worship said, Amen. Amen. Yeah. 
you can come in here faking the smile and leave here meaning it because you heard the saints singing praises to Jesus Christ. This verse is the reason I try to pick music, which is rich in biblical truth. It should be noted that Matt picked the music for this Sunday. Um, (laughs) I said that because it wasn't very good, but I was joking. (laughs) The reason we sing songs filled with doctrine instead of top 40 hits from K-Love isn't because I have a problem with K-Love. I think K-Love has its place. But when the people of God are worshiping God, we are singing truth to one another. I mean, God's here and he's blessed by our praise. But a big part of what we're doing is like trying to encourage one another. So you can, you can, you can come in one way with your heart down in the dumps and a good hymn can like lift your heart up onto the heights. You can come in And a good hymn can bring your pride down to the abyss. You can come in and a good hymn can remind you to let the peace of Christ dwell in your heart. So we admonish and encourage one another through hymns, songs, and spiritual psalms. And verse 16, again, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What's it say? With thanksgiving in your hearts to God. So there it is again. What are we grateful for? I'm grateful to be in a church where the word of Christ is preeminent. Like It's not lost on me that I get to stand up here and say exactly what I think, and you people keep showing up. (laughs) i'm grateful to be in a church that tunes my heart to sing his praises and i'm grateful for this refuge and sanctuary for my soul verse 17 whatever you do in word or deed do everything in the name of the lord jesus giving thanks to god the father through him um December 10th, 2005, Lisa is twice the size that she currently is because my Philistine son was a month away from being born. And I decided the best thing we could possibly do in that moment is go to the Humane Society and get a puppy. So we went to the Humane Society. In those days, there was no anyhumanesociety.org where you could go check out what dogs they had. So you had a pretty good shot of getting a winner when you went to the Humane Society in those days. And there was a kennel full of little brown fluff balls all eating at the far end, like away from where you stick your finger in and get bit. (laughs) And one of these little fluff balls noticed us and came waddling over, one of them. And so Lisa was assigned with the task of keeping her eye on that one while I went and got somebody to open the kennel and get this puppy out so we could bring her home. So we adopted Gabby December 10th. It was 2005. Yeah, because Sam was born January 2006. Uh, January 29th, 2019, I took a trip by myself to the vet. 
14 years later. And so, (laughs) sorry. That night, while she and I are weeping, I was like, we should pray. And I'm thinking, so it's a dog, right? (laughs) So we prayed and I just said, God, thanks for giving us that dog. It wasn't like, woe is us. I mean, we were sad, but we were grateful. It was 14 years. The the first dog you ever get when you're married is always the coolest dog you're ever going to have. And we kind of knew that. Like, she understood English. Uh, (laughs) She did. She never attacked children. She was just fantastic. And we were just brokenhearted because getting a puppy is the same as saying, I want my life ruined in about 15 years. But my prayer was a prayer of thanksgiving because what happens when you're a Christian is the things that God gives you to enjoy, you enjoy in light of the fact that he's given them to you. So you're able to be grateful even when it turns bad, when it breaks down, or when there's death. So we're going to leave this room in a few minutes. The lights are going to get turned off. The door is going to get locked and this will go back to being just a building. And we're going to go out there in the world and we're going to try to be salt and light. Actually, we're going to go decorate the town Christmas tree. Tomorrow night, we'll meet up with Springfield and we'll sing some Christmas carols, right? Some of you will have a little bit of time off of work this week to spend with your families. And I think you're probably looking forward to that. Some of you are going to face a job which is wearing you out. Some of you are going to face families that are falling apart, bills that are piling up, chronic disease that's not going away, friends who have gossiped about you, teachers who seem to hate you for whatever reason. You're going to face colleagues who will stab you in the back, kids who are rebelling, spouses who are distant. Some of you are going to get sick. Some of your cars are going to break down. Some of you are going to spend your first Thanksgiving mourning the loss of a loved one. Some of you are going to be tempted to wonder where the last 40 years went. And how has it been so many Thanksgivings? Some of you are going to battle besetting sin. Some of you are going to battle depression and anxiety. Some of you will get a raise. Some of you will make headway towards a healthier marriage. Some of you will fix that thing that's been broken on the house forever. Some of you will get praise at work or at school. Some of you will fall in love with your spouse all over again. Some of you will have hearts overflowing with joy on Friday as you decorate the house for Thanksgiving. After Thanksgiving, for Christmas, (laughs) told you I'm tired. Uh, Some of you will finally get a good night's sleep. Some of you will enjoy your favorite meal, your favorite hobby. You'll see family you haven't seen in a long time. Whatever you do, whatever you do, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's easy, whether it's hard, but in word or deed, do it in the name of Jesus Christ with thanksgiving. Now that's easier said than done. I want you to know that whatever happens to you, you were chosen for this. 
And God is going to use it, whatever it is, to work out in you what he once worked out in you. Wants, W-A-N-T-S, not O-N-C-E. Wants, what he wants worked out in you. So in Romans 8.28, when Paul writes and says he is working all things together for good for those who love him and are committed to him, we tend to think everything's going to be okay. And that is not what that verse is teaching. That verse is teaching that everything is being used by God to make you like Jesus. Even your failing marriage. Even the loss of a job. Even the bills piling up. Like God will use all of that to make you more like Jesus. And that is the most important thing. So we're going to take Lord's Supper here in a minute. And the most important thing we need to know about Lord's Supper is that it's for the people of God who have been chosen by God to believe in Jesus Christ. If you have something to remember, meaning you have a relationship with Jesus, we want you to come up and take and drink and take and eat. If you don't, if you don't know him, we don't want you to come up and eat and drink judgment to yourself. We want you to just stay seated. That's hard to do because what you feel like is everybody in this room is just looking at you going, oh, they didn't get up. And that's not what we're doing here. So what I'd like is for the heads of households to please get up and and your family can come with you and you take the elements and you go back and you sit down and you pray together and you take and eat. And whenever, you know, whoever's up here has cleared, the next group can come out. Like you guys will figure it out. If you don't have anybody, that can pray with you and take you up, tap me on the shoulder or any man in this room to go with you and pray with you. But do it in remembrance of the one who chose you and do it with gratitude for his choosing of you. Amen? Amen. Let me pray and then we'll start.